Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. It's Wednesday night, or for our friend that I just saw watching from Australia, 11 a.m. in the morning. You'll have to let us no, know. No, that's how great. Thursday morning. <laughs> yeah. But that Somebody's means in the future. Oh, no. But that means it's time for Friends in Fiction. It's our favorite hour on the internet, and we are so excited to welcome Marie Benedict and Fiona Davis. I'm Christy Woodson Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan Henry. I'm Kristen Harmel. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support independent bookstores, authors, and libraries. Tonight, we're so excited to be talking with three of our favorite authors, Marie and Fiona, now, and then don't miss our after show with Brenda Janowitz. And we have shared with you before that Mary Kay's daughter is sick, and so she is where she needs to be with her family tonight. So please join us in sending Mary Kay, her daughter Katie, and their family all our love and prayers as they navigate this territory. And as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Marie's books and Fiona's books and our books and Brenda's books <laughs> and all the books of all our guests that we've ever had. And a portion of each sale through the Friends and Fiction shop goes to support independent bookstores, and it also helps to support this show. In fact, in its first two years, bookshop.org has donated $21 million to support Indies. Amazing. Wow. Incredible. And don't forget that our spring box is now available for order from our friends at Oxford Exchange. If you order now, you will receive my The Wedding Veil in March, Mary Kay's The Homewreckers in May, and a special Friends in Fiction notebook complete with sticky flags for marking all your favorite pages. Plus, Mary Kay and I are throwing in a little special treat to go with each one of our books um, that we can't wait for you to see. Ooh, I'm excited. Even more excited mm -hmm. about this box. This Surprises awesome. are good, right? Surprises, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, sweetening the deal. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. I love it. All right. So all of you out there might remember we're in the second month of our very first Friends and Fiction Reading Challenge. So don't forget, you can keep track of what you're reading with our beautiful reading journal designed by us in conjunction with independent bookstore, Oxford Exchange. And there's a great little picture of the journal. It has this gorgeous, as you can see, Friends and Fiction blue linen cover and plenty of space to record your thoughts on what you're reading. So our friend Anissa Armstrong shared on our Facebook page under announcements that this month's prompt is memoir or nonfiction. We mm -hmm. talked, of course, last week about Alison Pataki's nonfiction book, which is fantastic, her memoir. Um, and there are just so many wonderful books out there to enjoy. I'm actually rereading The Widow Clicquot right now um, Ooh, for the second time. Yeah, which is such a good book. It's about the... Um, 
the uh, the woman who founded um, Veuve Clicquot, the actual Veuve Clicquot. How about you? We two? love her, and we don't know anything about her. Just, but I mean, but you know, she we makes just, delicious. We chicken. we love her. And yeah, we don't even know who she, she, she was is, actually but. a phenomenal pioneer in the champagne industry way so before cool. women were doing that sort of thing. So it's just neat. So I mean, that's cool. the kind of thing you can fall into when you read memoirs or nonfiction books, right? So let us know in the Facebook group what you're reading too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're excited to, to hear all about how you're meeting that reading challenge. Yeah. And I want to talk about Christie's The Wedding Veil. If you'll just let me talk about it for a minute, because it is out in fewer than seven weeks, and I read it, and I'm obsessed. And I'm telling you, you do not, for any reason, want to miss owning a signed first edition copy of this Christie's first hardcover. So many of you on the page, hundreds, click, 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 have asked where you can get a first edition signed. So in addition to the Oxford Exchange box, Christy will have her very first The Wedding Veil event on Pub Day on March 29th at one of our very favorite indies, M. Jetson Bookstore in Greenville, South Carolina. And they will be taking personalization requests and each signed copy comes with this little vial of rosebud tea. And you can find all the glorious and glittering details on her website. Thank you. And can, can I just add, A, I've read it. It's amazing. And B, for all of you who tune in, like this is a great, how do I even put it? This isn't in our script. I'm just saying Christy pours her like heart and soul and everything into this show week after week. And and it's just a nice way to thank her by buying it or pre-ordering it or buying it the first week. If this is a show that you enjoy watching, it's just a, it's a good deed to do for someone who shows up for us all the time. Yep. Aww, Plus, like it's y'all. an amazing Thank book. You. So why would you not? Thank you. <laughs> so Thank you. And mostly, they're so good to me. They both, they both blurbed it. I mean, can you imagine if they said no? <laughs> Show me very awkward. The show would thank fall you. apart. Thank you for all that you've done. You've been so supportive, and um, it's, it's a great book. It's a great and, book. And to all of you, book, yeah. So yeah. Hashtag buy her book. Well, let's welcome our guests for the evening. While practicing as a New York City lawyer, Marie Benedict dreamed of a job where she could uncover the hidden historical stories of women, and she discovered it once she tried her hand at writing. Her novels tell the tales of fascinating women from the past. She recently wrote the huge New York Times bestseller, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie, which focuses on the real life disappearance of Agatha Christie and how it shaped her into the world's most successful novelist. For her first co-written novel, Marie teamed up with Victoria Christopher Murray for, I know, I think almost everyone on our page has read and talked about this book with great love. The Personal Librarian, which was a New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America pick. Her new novel, which is brilliant, y'all, is Her Hidden Genius, which was just released last month and follows the British scientist Rosalind Franklin, who worked to discover the structure of DNA. Nurse Patty is geeking out. (laughs) (laughs) And she had her research taken by James Watson and Francis Crick, which are the names you learned in school, but you didn't yeah. learn Rosalind's name. Yeah. So it's an astounding book. 
Yeah, I, I can't wait to dig in with her about that tonight. It's going to be so interesting to hear the story behind this story. I know, I know. Yeah. Our second guest tonight, Fiona Davis, in addition to being an additional blurber of Christie's The Wedding Veil. <laughs> that's, I, I believe it has her wonderful quote on the front. Like, it's yeah. amazing. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know she had such kind things to say about it. But in addition to that, she is also the New York Times bestselling author of six historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings, including The Dollhouse, The Address, and The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. Her novels have been translated translated into over a dozen languages, and her articles have appeared in publications ranging from the Wall Street Journal to O, the Oprah magazine. I don't know to say what O is. I, I, I'm thinking. That is true. Well, maybe not. That's I'm just going to launch a magazine called K. Does K. that work? Well, maybe we can do it together. together. Yes. <laughs> what we no. need? We need another project. Can it be the KP? KP? Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. Um, Fiona is based in New York City. Although she first came to New York as an actress, Fiona fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. Her new novel, The Magnolia Palace, was just released last month and follows the secrets, betrayal, and murder within, a, within one of New York City's Gilded Age mansions. And let me tell you, I could not put this one down. It was absolutely, both of these books are just terrific. And we're so lucky to have these amazing guests. So Sean, will you bring them on? Hi, y'all. Hey, welcome, ladies. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was laughing backstage at you guys. We're so <laughs> Wait, at us or with us? We're confused. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at you, but definitely with you. <laughs> okay, good, good. Well, we PM Magazine. That's yes. Yeah, I'm going to subscribe. I was here. You guys, we have two, our first two subscribers. We have two okay. subscriptions. <laughs> That's all you need. Get going. That's all you need to get going. That's right. Well, welcome to our first two subscribers. <laughs> we are so glad to have you here. And as I said, we loved both of these beautiful novels about the most fascinating women. And um, we're so excited to talk to you about them. So, uh, before we get started, or I guess to get started, could you tell us a little bit about um, your beautiful new books? Marie, do you want to start us out? Sure. Um, well, you know, P, a.k.a. Patty, kind of stole <laughs> the a little bit. But um, it oh, is about the brilliant... I'm just going to call her P from now on. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Please, please. I have had a lot of nicknames, and I don't want that one. I really like Party Patty the best. That's the one that's Party sticking Patty. for me. Party Patty. Mm -hmm. no, that's a choice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Yes. Isn't that good? I know. We I know. embrace that choice. <laughs> Sorry. Um, on to a much more somber topic. Um, for Rosalind Franklin, the heroine of my new book, Her Hidden Genius, is, as Patty said, this brilliant chemist um, who becomes, um, through her diligent efforts, um, uncovers the double helix structure of DNA. Um, but without her permission and without her knowledge, her colleague, Morris Wilkins, with who is very, very jealous of the work that she's doing, shares her work with two gentlemen who you probably do know, uh, Francis um, Crick and James Watson. And within six weeks of getting their hands on her uh, research that took her years to do, they created a model of DNA and wrote a paper for which they won the Nobel Prize. Um, yes. it's, 
uh, unbelievably suspenseful, even though it's about science. Um, it's a story about love and loss, and most of all, about this incredible woman who we should all know because she really is responsible for modern day genetics in, in many ways, and, and most people don't know her name. Wow. Incredible, incredible. Fiona, how about you? Can you tell us about the Magnolia Palace? Yeah, sure. So the Magnolia Palace is set at the Frick Collection, which is a gorgeous uh, museum in New York City that was the home of of Henry Clay Frick and his family. I love that we have a Frick and a Crick. <laughs> and I love that if you say either one of those wrong, we'd get bleeped out. So. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. All right. So so I, I set my books in two timelines. And so in 1919, it's from the point of view of an, a very celebrated artist's model named Lillian, who gets caught up in a scandal. And to kind of hide out, she takes a job working incognito as the private secretary to Helen Frick, who's a very prickly temperamental woman, and the adult daughter of Henry Frick, who was a industrialist and a, an art collector. And she gets very caught up in the family drama. There's romantic trysts, betrayal, a stolen pink diamond known as the Magnolia Diamond, and, uh, and, and, you know, lots of crazy plot twists. And then in 1966, it's from the point of view of a fashion model named Veronica. And she's come to the Frick, what's now the museum, to do a Vogue photo shoot. And that goes terribly wrong. <laughs> and she gets stuck inside during a three-day blizzard along with an intern named Joshua. And she stumbles upon a series of hidden messages that are hidden within the artwork on the walls. And that leads her and Joshua on the scavenger hunt and that she hopes might solve all of her financial problems as well as possibly solve a murder uh, that happened in the Frick household uh, decades earlier. So good. Mm -hmm. So good description. Yeah. Okay. So both of you, I know firsthand what it's like to become so invested in, maybe infatuated with a woman's life that you feel compelled to tell their story. Whether someone says that's a great idea or not, you have to tell this woman's story. And for me, the idea to write about Doy Davidman struck years before I actually sat down to write the story. So you both took on the task of portraying real life women, Fiona and Helen Frick and Marie Rosalind Franklin. Can you tell us or talk to us a bit about what was the first spark for this story? What was the first spark that made you say, I want to write about her? Marie, you want to start us off? Um, well, I keep this this like crazy long list of historical women that I want to write about. I mean, oh. I like my like Santa Claus list, you know, yeah. and I hope I get to work my way through them all one day. But um, Rosalind was on it for a long time. She's been on it for years. She kind of always sort of hovered around the periphery of my sort of potential women I wanted to write about. But I wasn't sure um, about the real depth of her story, right? I knew that she was a scientist. Her, she had been overshadowed or marginalized in some ways in terms of the DNA discovery. But in terms of her life, I, I wasn't sure. And a very dear friend of mine who is an ER doctor, and she's really a, a hero in her own right. She led the Red Cross um, 
efforts during 9-11. She was a first responder. Um, She read um, this book called The Gene, which is nonfiction. And there's a section on Rosalind and she called me and she said, okay, I I don't know what is on your plate next, but you have to write about Rosalind Franklin. I'm like, I don't know. You know, she's, I'm not sure her life is is suspenseful or interesting enough. And she's like, oh, it is. Um, She said she made the ultimate sacrifice for her discoveries. And she said um, she did so much after she discovered DNA. She made these unbelievable discoveries, which um, are really the foundational work for RNA and viruses and all this other stuff. This is before COVID. And so I dug in and I found out that her life was actually hugely interesting and her, her legacy much faster than I could have ever imagined. But it wasn't until I was actually writing it during COVID that I realized that so much of the um, under our understanding of COVID and our creation of the viruses, which has been really a very much a, a female scientist led effort across companies and universities, a lot of um, Rosalind's work is foundational to that. And wow. I mean, it was just the, sort of the timing came together and mm-hmm. I was so thankful I had listened to my friend because if I hadn't, she might've still been on that list and I wouldn't have been able to celebrate her in the really, I think, really timely way. At the right time. Yeah. I, I remember when, when I saw it and I told you that I had briefly for two seconds met Jennifer Downda, who is responsible for, you know, working on Rosalind's work and then taking it yeah. even further for splicing. And I, I can geek out on it. I just think it's amazing. I'm so glad you decided to write about her. So, it's all right, really- Fiona, what was your first real spark for yeah, this? So I, I started looking into the Frick family, and basically they lived in this huge mansion on Fifth Avenue. Um, it, enormous. There's a bowling alley in the basement. That's how big it is. And, and it was a family of three served by a staff of 27. Oh, and they wow. lived there and they lived there from 1914 on. And, you know, you think, oh, this this daughter, Helen, she must have been very coddled and and that kind of thing and spoiled. But she she was an interesting woman and she had so much depth and so many contradictions. And I think that's what drew me to her. You know, she was her father's confidant. Very, very, they were very, very close in terms of the art collecting and and that kind of thing. Um, but she was also pretty prickly and they had a a tough, a difficult relationship, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And so things like, you know, she, she hated anyone with a German last name. She wouldn't let them on her property or, you know, work anywhere near her. Um, She, if any of her friends got a Bob haircut, which of course was very big in the 1920s, she would unfriend them. And um, because she wore a, a, a pompadour and a bun most of her entire adult life. Uh, she just was, you know, she was a, a really kind of dug in woman. But at the same time, in World War One, during 1917, at the, the worst of the war, she created a Red Cross unit and took it to France to help refugees. And that was an incredibly brave thing to do. And when she came back, she was really almost traumatized by it to the point where her father talked about how when she went through Grand Central, she had to walk along the the perimeter. She couldn't walk through the Grand Concourse. It was too exposed. Mm. And I think that kind of thing really affected her. And then she went on to create the Frick Art Reference Library, which is, um, you know, right next door to the Frick and this celebrated top of the line art reference library, the best in the world. 
And that's where she put her passion. She didn't have kids. She didn't get married. And she, she was just this interesting woman who was not necessarily likable, but I kind of like that about her. Yeah. yeah. When I, when, when I talk about Joy Davidman and people say, I didn't like her very much. I'm like, I don't, it doesn't matter. You don't have to. <laughs> what she was, was complicated and interesting. Just mm-hmm. like you're a woman. Complicated and interesting is better than likable and boring. <laughs> and what's fun is I found so many readers reach out to me and tell me that she's their favorite character. Wow. I, I think it's because she just is unapologetically herself. Uh, she has that like piece of her that we all kind of secretly wish, wish we had, you know, where mm-hmm. you're just like, I don't care. I'm going to say exactly what I think about this and like how freeing that must be. <laughs> yes. and, and especially at a time in history where that wasn't the norm, oh, you know, it, I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's incredible. You are not supposed to stand in your own power and say, no. I want this. I like that. Mm-hmm. I just Absolutely wasn't. Not. So yeah. And I, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I have Helen on my list because oh. Helen Frick, she's on my list. Oh. She, I spent a huge amount of time. She's from Pittsburgh and she lived yeah. in Pittsburgh until she was a teenager. And the house that she lived in is now like a house museum in, in a very small scale compared to the Frick collection. And um, when I was writing Carnegie's Maid, I spent a huge amount of time in her personal papers. And she oh survived the house at the very end of her life. That's where she died. And I met with and spent a lot of time with the people who were her caretakers at that time. Wow. So all this crazy stuff about her. And she was on my list because I thought, what an unusual, striking, complicated woman who really carved her own path at a time when that was just simply not done. Right. I mean, her job was supposed to be to get married and, you know, establish another mansion in Newport or something. Right. But she was totally different. She's amazing. I love her. Oh, I love this crossover because it's so interesting because I actually think we both um, interviewed Colin Bailey. Yes. Because he's the director of the Morgan and he Mm -hmm. used to be a curator at the Frick. So oh my gosh! So much crossover. It's kind of wonderful. Oh, oh that's awesome. Frick is one of my favorite places. And in fact, the Frick, uh, the Frick's, there's a whole scene in um, Personal Librarian where the Frick's buy paintings yes. that were once owned by the Morgan. And then they become that beautiful room with the Frick, which if you haven't seen, you have to go see. I mean, it's just stunning. Oh my God. I, I love these I places. Love this tie. This is awesome. Great. No, we knew. We knew that. Yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah. 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 This was mm-hmm. deliberate. We're, we're geniuses. That's why our mm-hmm. magazine's going to fly off the shelves. Mm-hmm. Just so you this, know is, this is our hidden genius. <laughs> <laughs> we invited you here to tell you that. Yes. So, you know, <laughs> um, our hidden genius. <laughs> so, as you were both talking about um, these women at the center of your novels, I was thinking about how um, how you both do so much, not just with these books, but with other books too, to bring these um, these complicated women, specifically women from the past who were not necessarily um, recognized for their contributions to society to bring them back to the forefront. So Marie, of course, in the case of Rosalind Franklin, um, you know, her DNA research was groundbreaking. Fiona, in your case, your fictional Angelica, um, I believe was based on the model whose figure was the inspiration for some of the most famous statues um, that still kind of, you know, wow us today, but who, but, you know, you never hear her name. That's something that's not common knowledge. So 
um, you two, you know, you've both been kind enough to blur my books. I know you completely, you know, that I also know how important it is to bring yeah. these, um, these forgotten pieces of the past back to the forefront. Um, and I think that's such an interesting thing, both in writing stories like that and in reading stories like that. Mm-hmm. So at the end of my long question, sorry, I'm going off on a <laughs> tangent. Um, I was wondering, do you think that you, and this is going to be a question to both of you. Do you think that you feel a special calling to make sure that these women are remembered in history? Or do you think that that recognition that they now get in your books is sort of a byproduct of a story um, too good to pass up? You know, a story that's just demanding to be told. So kind of what's the impetus? Is it is it wanting to tell these women's stories and restore their place? Or is it... Um, they were so fascinating. Their stories are interesting. Fiona, how about you? Yeah, it's such a good question. As I'm doing my research, I always in every book have come across a woman who's really been lost to history, possibly overshadowed by men, the way that Angelica or Lillian in the book, that's her her kind of stage name. Um, But her real name was Audrey Munson. And she was this incredible artist's muse and her her statues can be found all over New York City. And, you know, she went on to lead this incredible life. But then in the end, and this is different from the book, which is why I renamed her. She ended up in an asylum where she died in 1996 at the age of 104. <gasps> wow. And it's, it's so shocking that we don't know her name, that we walk by statues at Columbus Circle in front of the Plaza Hotel, the New York Public Library, the Brooklyn Museum. She's everywhere in New York. And we know the special <sighs> names, but we don't know her name. And, and I think what happens is I, I find these women. And the reason I found her was that her figure is carved into the pediment above the entrance to the Frick. And that's where I first heard of Audrey Munson. That's the connection to the building. And whenever I read something like that, I think, okay, I, I want to shout this from the rooftops. Yeah. How do people not know this, this woman? For example, in, in the masterpiece, there's an illustrator who a character is based on who existed in real life. And I read her story and thought, why don't we know her name? Yes. And so many of these women end up having really hard times because they're they're just not, you know, considered important. And so I think by writing this story and, and shouting it to the rooftops, you know, Audrey Munson, go look who she is. Go check her out. Right. And um and drawing people to her, it, it kind of fulfills that need to share it with everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How, how about you, Marie? Oh, absolutely. I mean it's It's a combination of the two, but I really am very mission driven. You know, I really feel this very specific mission to, to honor these women, to bring them out, you know, really from the detritus of the past where they've been hidden or buried by somebody in the case and, and really shine the light on them. But, you know, I'm looking for, for specific things in the woman, you know, I'm looking for a woman who's legacy is very tangible, something we can really get our hands around, which is, I think, kind of why I end up writing about a scientist a lot, because their legacies are so clear. And so we can see the way that their that their work has played out over time. Um, and I'm also looking for women who are really grappling with modern day issues, whether it's, you know, the marginalization of scientists or, you know, work-life balance or the way in which women can or can't use their political voices. 
But at the end of the day, you know, even though I'm very mission driven in terms of who makes it on my list, whether they meet the rubric or not, um, I think that it has to be a good story. You know, I think Ross Franklin is is a is a really clear case in point. You know, she was on my list. I knew she had all the right elements. She met the rubric, but was her story going to be compelling enough? Was it going to draw people in? Because if it doesn't, it it's it's lost the purpose. The purpose of what I'm doing is to really bring them to life, to have, give them that second chance at life that they didn't have the first time around. And, um, and so with Rosalind, I wasn't sure, but when I dug into it and I saw this sometimes prickly, brilliant, um, yes. sometimes off-putting, but could also be super charming and loving, um, was a woman who'd had love affairs and um, a wonderful family life and was yes. so much more than the one-dimensional scientist that she'd been made out to be yes. by James Watson. So, you know, and to me also that sort of idea of how a woman becomes an icon or not, yeah. Um, it's very much a part of the process of the book as well. And it was an idea I wanted to explore. So for me, it's really a combination of things, but very, very mission driven to start. That completely makes sense. You know, and, and all five of us here have, I think, been writing for years. We've been doing this for a while. Do you think we're at a, at a moment in history where, um, where the doors are opening for us to be able to do that. I mean, I, I, that's, that's what it feels like to me that, that these stories that maybe even 10 years ago wouldn't have been received mm-hmm. the same way. Um, I don't know. We're, we're just sort of at a special moment in time. W- would you agree with that? Oh. Yeah, I, I definitely would like something like the queen's gambit, you know, the success yeah. of the yes. right? where mm-hmm. it's this woman who no one knew her name mm-hmm. and, and now it's out there. I think there's an appetite for it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think I, I think people are thirsting for those stories, but they didn't even know they, that they were thirsting for them until they tried them. And now yes. that they have, they want more of it. You know, they want to look back in the past and see these women where they've been all along hiding in plain sight, you know? So I think yeah. that that really has fueled that along. But but I agree with you too, Kristen. I think maybe the appetite wasn't there before, you yeah. know. The book that put me on this path is is the Mists of Avalon, which I, I talk about a lot, but which is a uh, a retelling of the Arthurian legend from the point of view of the women. And I read that when I was like in middle school, and there was like nothing like that at the, at that time. Yes. And that book really put me on the path that I'm on today. Although it took me way too long to figure that out, but yeah. that book was like the only one of its kind for so long. Yes. And I think that there's a little bit of that people thirsting for it. And then finding it, um, and then wanting more of it. I hope, anyway, because that's what yeah. I do. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we're yeah, working that's on. Exactly, that's, that's your right. mission. That'd be yeah. Good. yeah. Yeah. Well, Marie, Patty's already been super stingy with her praise about how much she loves the science <laughs> parts of <laughs> your book. Hasn't um, mentioned it to us um, at all. Yeah. Zipping no. it, no. stingy, no. stingy yeah. with her praise. But um, I am also kind of a science nerd, um, and I actually did science writing in college, and kind of thought that was going to be like my. Yes, I love science, um, and so the science nerd in me really loved the science parts of her hidden genius and found them so fascinating. But I am just so the whole time I was reading, you know, I guess as writers we just read in a different way. I was thinking, how is she doing this research? Because not only where you having to do this massive amount of scientific research, but you're having to do a massive amount of scientific research from the 1940s. So it's right. not like 
you're going to a scientist and saying, explain to me how you would find this, how it would be uncovered and how it would work. Like you are recreating these processes that haven't probably gone on in a while for the most part. So how did you go about finding this information? Wow. That's like, how long do you have? It's <laughs> been a while. Is that a really long time? I mean, I don't know what I think I'm doing. I'm nobody scientist. You know, I just, I go where the women lead. You know, if, if it's science, I follow them. If it's politics, I go there. If it's, you know, Czechoslovakia or England, I'll go wherever they go and I have to figure it out as I go along. Um, you know, I think in this particular book, um, I did have to go back. And I think what one of the things I was so fortunate is, you know, all of us love that original source material, right? We love the letters and the, the, the journals, the stuff that's like brings the person to life. Mm -hmm. And in response to um, James Watson wrote a, an absolutely incendiary autobiography about the creation of DNA, um, you know, in I think it was 1968, long after all this happened. And her, um, Rosalind's really good friend, Ann Sayre, who was um, married to a microbiologist who was friends with Rosalind, was outraged at her portrayal in there. She was like the stereotypical, um, dark, stingy, very difficult scientist who didn't want to help anybody, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't want to be an assistant to you. I apologize. But anyway, um, so she got, Ann Sayre got so incensed by this biography, she spent two or three years researching exactly what happened, interviewing everybody, collecting all of Rosalind's documents. And she wrote her own biography about what happened, which is awesome. I mean, everybody should read this. So be a masterpiece of writing, really. But here's the amazing part. She saved everything um, and gave it to the American Society for Microbiology Library. And during COVID, this most amazing librarian copied it all for me. Oh, so not God. only did I have like, all these letters, all these family interviews, all these interviews of every single person who was involved in the 1960s and 70s while they were still alive. There's also so much about how the process, how it happened, um, what her friend really thought of in terms of, of, of he said, she said, like what happened with um, the wow. taking of the information. So while I did have to kind of go back into scientific history of science, books and kind of learn the science from a historical standpoint. And I was fortunate. I have a good friend who is a PhD in chemistry from Princeton and helped guide me along the way. I mean, she couldn't, you know, really tell me about certain historic things, but she could verify that I was on the right track. So with good research, good people, and this amazing sort of treasure trove of information from Ann Sarah, I was able to kind of piece it together. And and that also really brought Rosalind alive for me, which was an immense gift. That's awesome. So cool. Marie, yeah. can I just ask a quick question that I know I know the answer to having read the book, but um, I just want to clarify. Um, I'm not a science geek. You don't need to be a science geek to like this book, right? It, it's, it's the story of a woman, right? It's the story right. of this woman who just happens to be a scientist. Like that, yes. you, you don't have to go into it loving science, correct? No. I mean, I definitely think that if I can write this book, anyone can write this book. Because no. I want to explain it in a way that, because basically I was processing all this information and boiling it down in a very understandable fashion for myself. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, in order to translate it in a book, it had to be accessible yeah. to me. And in that, given that I'm not a scientist and I'm not a science geek, um, 
it was, I know that anyone could read it and understand of it. I mean, I think this, I had to learn the science because it's important to the suspense because there was a race. There was a race to discover DNA. Absolutely. And you have to understand why certain people won and how Mm -hmm. certain people lost and what happened. Absolutely. Um, so that's that's the part that you really that's the only reason you really need to know that part yeah. of it. And I think it, she has such a rich, complicated life too, yeah. like just beyond all of that in her personal story. But I think also, you know, highlighting kind of that race part of it, you you're feeling her it's something it's like a universal feeling. And like the the kind of the times that she's putting herself in positions that are damaging to herself that she probably should not be doing because she wants it so much, you know? And I think it's something that science or no science, you know, whatever it is, we've all kind of felt that feeling. Women trying to get to the finish line in ways without being run over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I think what's even more remarkable in some ways about Rosalind is she was doing it for all the right reasons. She wasn't doing it for the race. She wasn't doing it for the Nobel Prize. She was doing it for humanity. And her, you know, that's really such a legacy of her family. They were true altruists. And I just in the past week, um, two weeks, I have become very friendly with her family. In fact, her niece, Rosalind, um, and I have spent a lot of time together and I've been able it's been unbelievable um how warm and welcoming and um kind they've been about the book but also it's given me so many insights into their family overall and Mm. how Rosalind was so unique in that this was her form of familial altruism and the race wasn't the same kind of race for her as it was for other people Mm -hmm. wow okay Fiona we know that you have made a really fabulous and completely fascinating career by finding notable New York City buildings and then telling their stories through the people. Your buildings don't talk to us. <laughs> well, they kind of do. I am also someone who believes that every place and the treasures inside of it tell a story. So the idea of using not only the Frick, which is a favorite museum in New York, but also the incredible works of art inside to tell a story is so fascinating. So I have kind of a double-edged question. Why the Frick, which could be, <laughs> makes me laugh. Why the Frick did you do that? Why the Frick? And how did you do the incredibly detailed research about the paintings? I, I want to hear a lot about this. Yeah, yeah. I'll freaking tell you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. awesome. I had to do it. Um, yeah, you know, I, I love the Frick. I think if you ask any New Yorker what's their favorite building, their favorite museum, they mm-hmm. tend to say the Frick. And it's not like the Met or the Guggenheim, which are these huge, you know, monster museums. It's it's smaller. It's three stories. Um, you know, it's set back from Fifth Avenue. And the reason I was really drawn to it was the fact that it was a residence and then a museum. And so when you're working into two timelines, that works really well because you can show how the building and the people within it have changed over time. And it was wonderful working with them and, you know, the Frick organization in terms of the research. Um, You know, it was during lockdown. And so I got this amazing behind the scenes tour in January of 2020 and then New York City lockdown in March. But luckily on Frick.org, they have this incredible floor plan with a 360 degree view in every room. 
And so you can just plop right into whatever room you need, look around. So if I was, you know, working in the library and say, all right, what's the painting above the fireplace? I could go into that and then you click on the painting and it tells you all about it. Oh, wow. And so, and I highly recommend people go check it out because it's such a beautiful, every room is so spectacular. And then on top of that, you know, I needed to know more about life as the family lived it in the 1910s. And so there they have digital archives that they were able to share with me of, you know, dinner party menus from 1915 for a dinner party for 30 and all of the seven courses that were served or the payroll, which showed all of the staff, how much they got paid, what their names were, what they did. And that was just, yeah, that, that really made it, it manageable, even though it was during 2020. And, and, you know, also they do this amazing thing, cocktails with a curator during COVID every Friday at five, where they would have a, you know, a 10, 15 minute video of a, a curator drinking a cocktail and talking about one painting. Wow. And that I highly recommend you check that out too. Oh, um, I want to go to that. Yeah. Oh, it's so much fun. They're all online. And, and so, you know, I could really kind of embed myself in, in whatever painting I needed to really, really do a deep dive about. Awesome. And it was a matter with the scavenger hunt of finding paintings that reflected what the characters were as well. So Veronica's a model and she's looking at a, a painting. And who was that woman who, who sat for that painting in the 1800s? Yeah. What was her story? And, and kind of going down that road because I wanted it to be fun. I didn't want to hit people over the head with the art history. Mm-hmm. You know, I took a class art history in college, pass fail, and I passed. So I thought, hey, I should write a book about art. <laughs> <laughs> Not like Marie. Because <laughs> of that. Right? Like me with science. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> but by making it a scavenger hunt and the clues being really bad poetry, you know, which was a lot of I fun. I love that. Because they were, yeah. they're all just too horrendous um, poetry. <laughs> and, and, and so by making kind of fun in that way, I hope it brings the collection to life in a way that even though you're reading it, you're not looking at it, you you, you feel like you understand what it was all about and what the Fricks accomplished. Yeah. Well, we have got so many questions. Just fly- I mean, we could ask you questions all night. We have so many questions flying in for you guys from the audience. So um, Kristen, will you pull a live question for us? Yes, we actually have a great one from Amy Sparkman. I'm so interested to hear the answer. She wants to know, for both of you, how has your writing changed from your first book to your most recent? Oh, I want to know, too. Because I think, I mean, I've read both of you for a while, so it's just interesting. uh, Marie, do you want to start? Sure. Um, gosh, I think I'd have to go back to my like first, first book, um, which I wrote under a different name, still the same themes, uh, other pieces of history. I wrote a few books, um, that were historical suspense. And then I did two YA books before I wrote these books. And I feel like, um, my writing has changed so much because I feel like in some ways those books were writing exercises where I was supposed to go. Like the first books I learned that I, I I didn't love the modern day storylines. What I loved was the historic storylines. And then with YA, I learned that I love to write um, in the first person because you know, those YA books, they love to to keep it very emotional and very real. Um, And it was, and I knew I was, getting closer and closer to really narrowing into just women's histories, but bringing all those things together and telling their stories in the first person from a really intimate standpoint was really, I don't 
know, kind of, it was a path. Then I had to go through all of those sort of iterations to get to where it's supposed to be. Oh yeah. That's so interesting. That completely Mm -hmm. makes sense. How, How about you, Fiona? Yeah. You know, because I write in two timelines and there's an element of mystery that drives the story forward and plot twists, I've always really outlined each timeline very carefully um, before I even start that first draft uh, because I need a guidepost. I need to know where I'm going. I need to make yeah. sure a plot twist doesn't screw up the story in the other timeline of giving away something too early. And so I've always done that. But I think as I've done the later books, I'm more open to letting the characters do what they need to do as I'm writing a scene. And sometimes they don't behave. They don't follow that outline. And I've learned that that's okay. And just to let them go their way and you'll figure it out in the end. And usually when that happens, that's the right decision. That's the right way to go. I don't know if you guys have, have discovered yes, that we as well. Yeah. 100%. Yes. Sure. Very good point. Definitely. You have to leave that room for them to take you where they want to take you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's a great question here from Carrie Soderman and it's actually, um, Glad she asked it because I was thinking about it when I was talking to you, Marie, and you might not even know, but has the Nobel Prize Committee ever talked about going back and recognizing recognizing women whose work was claimed by men? Have they ever talked about retro Nobel Prizes? Has that even come up? Um, it definitely has been talked about in general. Now, whether the, the Nobel Committee has has agreed to do that is a different matter. But what I will say is that um, at the time, I had to learn a little bit about how the Nobel process works, which I didn't know, um, just to understand why Rosalind did or didn't get it. And they have always maintained she didn't get it because they don't give, um, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but they don't give um, Nobels posthumously and they don't give it to more than three people. Um, so that's the way that they describe it away. But if you look at the records of how it was actually decided who would get it in this case, because it was Watson Crick and Rosalind's terrible colleague, Morris Wilkins, um, they have a private investigation done of the entire pro- of, during the process. And the private investigator said, I don't know why this isn't being given to Rosalind Franklin. It seems to me that she would have been the one to get it rather than Morris Wilkins. So that's like the independent person saying, wow. wait a second, you know. So it's interesting to me that that, you know, someone who's really close to all that information right at the time um, really knew that she deserved it. And yet these sort of arbitrary rules were set up to to prevent her from getting it. Um, I don't think they'll go back and revisit it because they would have to go back and revisit so, so yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, Fiona, super briefly, I have to ask this because it just popped up and I think this is so great. Um, Terry Stafford Stokes wants to know if you take your house guests on personal New York tours of the places that you've written about. <laughs> and we want to be your house guests. Can we be your house guests? <laughs> yeah, that's the other question. That's the actual real question. We, you know, you know, we, we publish a magazine, Fiona. We don't want to, you know, we're pretty important. <laughs> Yeah, no, I get it. We'll do, we'll rent a limo for that one. So good. You know, it's the funniest thing is ever since I think the second, even the first book, there's a book club in Boston called Club Red, R-E-D, and it stands for Reading, Eating, and Drinking. And, oh, I like and that. They're an amazing bunch. And every year they have rented a bus and about 30 of them 
come down and tour the locations of whatever book that is. And I'll join them for lunch. And it's just really wonderful. I'm just so impressed with them. I have to give a shout out to Club Red. It's, it's, it's awesome. That's incredible. That's pretty cool. You notice how she, she like sort of sidestepped. Whether she I know. I, I, I mean, the really window did come up. She, <laughs> she didn't give us a definite yes, did she? Right, right. Oh. Well, name the date. Name the date. I'll get the limo. We'll, we'll be set. We will be so set. I promise. <laughs> well, Chrissy, do you want to ask more live ones? or No, I'm sorry. Let's move on to the right tip. Okay. So, Marie and Fiona, one of our favorite parts of the night is for us and for the watchers, the viewers, is to ask y'all for a good writing tip. It is always so fascinating to hear, um, no matter how many authors we talk to, that they have such different perspectives on writing. So, Marie, you want to go first? Um, I, for me, I think the most important thing has been throughout this whole process, going from a lawyer to becoming a writer, kind of working my way through the books to find really what I think I'm meant to do. Um, it's been following what I'm really passionate about. Uh, you know, you always hear the tip, write what you know. Well, if that were the case, none of us would be writing anything historical because, you know, we weren't there. Um, but I do think writing what you're passionate about, whether you know it or not, right? I think that has always been sort of a, a guiding post for me. Um, I, for me, it's, it's about circling back to what I was really passionate about when I was, you know, in middle school, early high school, before society told yeah. me who I should be. Um, and I often find that when people are thinking they want to write, but they don't know what exactly what to focus on, focusing on who you were then or what you were passionate about at your most sort of early self is, is an interesting exercise. But I say follow what you're passionate about, not necessarily what you know. Otherwise, I would definitely not be writing this book. <laughs> right. That's awesome. How about you, Fiona? Yeah, you know, I, I never imagined I would write a book. I thought that was what other people did. There was no way I could imagine writing, you know, 100,000 words. And it wasn't until I was in my late 40s and really felt like I had something to say. And this kind of ties in with what Marie's talking about. It wasn't until I've kind of gone out and lived life and, and suffered and celebrated and done all these things that I had something to say. Yeah. And so my advice would be, don't rush it. Don't feel like if you don't write your book by the time you're 30, you know, yeah. it's all over. You, there, there's plenty of time to get experience and go out and live. Yeah. And then once you're ready, you'll know it's time. And then just leap into it. I, I've changed careers every 10 years and I highly recommend it. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's so true. I feel like so many of us yeah. couldn't write what we write without having lived. No, yeah. 100%. Yep. 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 So, yeah. That's such a big part of it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Quick question for both of you. I know you're both, um, such, uh, you're both so generous about reading work by other authors, by, um, by giving support to those authors. Is there anything quickly you can shout out that's coming down the pipeline in the next couple of months mm -hmm. that you've gotten an early glimpse of that you want to recommend to our viewers out there? Yeah, I'll go first if you want. Right? Yeah, yeah, please. Yes. Yeah. I happen to have it right here because I just finished it. It's The Foundling by Anne Leary. Oh, she's Foundling. It's it's historical fiction, and it's based on a true women's asylum that was in um, America in the 1920s, where they put what they call mm -hmm. feeble-minded women of childbearing age. 
And it was basically a place where if you didn't like your wife, you could toss her in there. And it's an incredible story. It's fictional characters, fictional Mm -hmm. place, but based on fact. And the ending is one of the best endings Ooh. I've read in a long time. I Ooh, can't wait. It. it comes awesome. out in, in, uh, looks like May 31st. Ooh, awesome. I'm excited. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, I just have to say, it reminds me of a nonfiction back to your nonfiction list. Oh, there you go. Yeah. There's a great book, um, by Kate Moore, nonfiction called the women that could not silence. And it's oh, about okay. the historical practice of putting, um, not necessarily feeble minded, but, um, objectionable women in asylums, mm-hmm. women who would not do what was society expected or maybe were in contravention of what their husband wanted or their father. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, I don't know exactly the topic of this book, but it sounds really dovetails yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. It would be a really interesting nonfiction comparison because yeah. oh, this is crazy. Oh my gosh. I'd like the title for your next book, Marie. Objectionable women. <laughs> yes, God. yes. You just said objectionable women, and it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, well, I think you know. I I think I'd be a proud objectionable woman. I would like to. That could be a magazine title, actually. Yes, <laughs> and nailed it. Perfect. That is perfect. Well, Marie and Fiona, I think it's safe to say you have earned a spot on the board of our new magazine. Um, and, if you, and if you wouldn't mind sticking around for a few more minutes, we have one additional question for you. But first, a few reminders from us. Um, don't forget about our Writer's Block podcasts. It is every single Friday, and it's different than this show. We will always post links under announcements each time a new one goes out. Last week, Ron and Mary Kay talked with Linda Keatron from the Litchfield Luncheon Series about people who are author allies. And we all know that we wouldn't be here without them. Mm-hmm. And this week, Ron and Christy talked to Robert Dagoni. And I know y'all are going to freak the frick building out <laughs> because that book is posted about more times on our page. and. They talk about the staying power of stories, and we know you will love to listen to this one. He is the author of The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hill. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're hitting those little subscribe buttons, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter and our YouTube channel so you never miss anything. And sometimes if you want to watch some back episodes, you can go to the new streaming platform, platform platform called loco plus which includes lots of brand new content from other independent creators like us yeah we love them we're happy to be be on their platform all right so we tell you this every week but you guys if you have not joined the friends and fiction official book club yet what are you waiting for um of course the group is separate from us brenda gardner and lisa harrison run the group um they have more than ten thousand members They have amazing behind-the-scenes book chats. They have special happy hours with Ron Block. Uh, Just all sorts of amazing things, including a a read of The Wedding Date by Jasmine Guillory, who was our guest, I think, last summer or the summer before. The years are flying by now. Um, But she's coming on on February 17th to discuss that book. And, you know, she's wonderful. She's going to do just a great job with them. Um, We encourage you to join. So the Friends in Fiction Official Book Club. 
And make sure to join us for our next episode of Friends in Fiction next Wednesday, right here at 7 p.m., where we will welcome Jane Allen of the Black Girls Must Be Magic series. Then on February 23rd, we host V.E. Schwab and G.R. and Greer McAllister. Oh, is she, the, her new book. G.R. 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 Yeah. I was like, is that a typo? G.R. McAllister for her new book. We'll join for the after show. If you are ever wondering about our schedule, it is always on the Friends in Fiction website and on the header graphic on our Facebook page. And so, ladies, before you go, um, we have one last question for you. Um, and this could be a hard one, although Marie kind of mentioned it, so maybe we'll let her go first. But what is the book that changed you the most as a writer? Well, I did already. I already kind of yeah, um, I would definitely say The Mists of Avalon. I mean, it, it's a, an old book. It's a fantasy novel. It's from, I don't even know when, but my precious aunt who really set me on my life's path way back when gave it to me as a present. And it was just that that retelling of something so familiar from the perspective of the woman that opened up my eyes to the fact that there were all these women's stories and women's perspectives and women's histories out there and they were not being told. And how could we even understand our history with just one perspective? Um, and so it really asked me, uh, led me down the path of asking that question, how history is formed and really to look in this case for the women and for the voices that aren't heard. So that book did it for me. I don't think that was the intention of that book, but that was definitely the result of that. That's experience. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. What about you, Fiona? Yeah, I would have to say uh, the people of the book by Geraldine Brooks. Oh, wow. It's such a good book. And, and it's about a, a sacred Jewish text that travels through centuries. And that I think taught me, you know, how you could leap through time but still tell a cohesive story and one that's full of interesting characters and kind of compare and contrast how people's voices and agency have changed over time and how they haven't. And so that, that, that would be it for me. That sent me on my historical fiction rampage. I can see just the, the continuity of that into what you did and you took it and made it your very own buildings. Yeah. I took a building instead of a book. <laughs> I love that. Fascinating. I love that. Well, ladies, you have been such incredible guests. Um, mm -hmm. I know everyone in our group loves you guys and they, they always want to hear from you and your new, about your new books. And so we are so grateful that you spent your Wednesday night with us. We so love the books. Um, and everyone, if you have not read her hidden genius in the Magnolia Palace, run, don't walk to get your copy, <laughs> or you can order it from our bookshop.org store. So ladies, thank you so much thank for being here. Thank you for joining us. Y'all are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. you we adore you. We adore you. We adore you back. Good night. All right, everyone out there, make sure to stay tuned. We have a very special after show that you are not going to want to miss. We are going to be welcoming the amazing Brenda Janowitz. And don't forget that you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We are live there every week, just like we are on Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Plus, you'll have access to special short clips. And be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, as we welcome Jane Allen. Hello, ladies. Wow, what a show. Yeah. What great guests they were. I mean, when you started talking about it's time for um, announcements, I was like, no, 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 no. Know, like, no, this no way an hour I went know. by. No way an hour went by. I know. Well, the good news is it isn't over yet. And we are so excited to welcome Brenda Janowitz. She is the author of six novels. And her seventh novel, The Liz Taylor Ring, was just released on February 1st. 
She is the former books correspondent for Pop Sugar, and her work has also appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Real Simple, USA Today, Bustle, Writer's Digest. She's amazing. <laughs> she attended Cornell University and Hofstra Law School. Wait, who was here? Let who was teaches at Hofstra Law, Hofstra Law School? It doesn't outfit oh. teach there now. Oh no! But I was thinking of all the ways that, like, we could mispronounce that. That's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyway, after graduate, I didn't though. I didn't. So <laughs> you you nailed that. I was like, yeah, Patty, get it. Well <laughs> so after graduation, she worked for the law firm K Scholar LLP and did a federal clerkship with the Honorable Marilyn Dolan Go, United States Magistrate Judge for the Eastern District of New York. That's literally the longest title. Okay. <laughs> Are, are you trying to ask for a long title when we do our magazine masthead? Is that what that's about? I want the word honorable in front of it. She doesn't want just P. She needs like a long title. I need the honorable yeah, the yeah. honorable. The honorable All right, Sean, let's bring in the honorable Brenda. That was quite an intro. I like it. <laughs> Very impressive. And Judge Go would love that. You were so excited. That would be title. so much easier to say, Judge go come on yes, awesome. <laughs> what a name it's amazing brenda we're so happy you're here we're so yeah. excited thanks for and having me brenda you and i have known each other for like <laughs> five million years have we not yeah. all literally, the way back in media Easter days <laughs> literally five million i mean it's i mean we we both have good skincare <laughs> but it's been five million <laughs> well let's put it this way when we first met we were both single running around yes. our various cities oh and now we're both married with kids <laughs> and mortgages, <laughs> and, mortgages <laughs> and mortgages that's the big one yeah it's so true well brenda we are so happy that you're here tonight can you kick things Thank off you. by telling us about the liz taylor ring i would love to i even have my copy right here Yay! <laughs> perfect thank you for loving me so the liz taylor ring is the story of three siblings, their parents' epic love story, and the one diamond ring that was thought to be long lost, but soon gets discovered, sending the entire family into upheaval. It's a family drama. It's really about the bonds of siblings, but it's also about the nature of family story and sort of how these stories morph as they go through the generations and as different people tell them. So it has something for everyone, especially people who like big diamonds, which the cover. <laughs> but who doesn't? I mean, and come on. Well, my mom, when I was working on it, she likes to get me a little memento for the books. So oh, she she called me and she was like, how big was the crop? But she knew that the character in the book, it, I like to joke, Elizabeth Taylor's crop diamond was 33.19 carats, but my character had like a normal humongous diamond, <laughs> like for a normal person. So in the book, it's an 11 carat stone. So she went and she got a crop replica but it's a lot oh, oh my gosh, that's so cool. People keep saying, you know, do you have a real? I'm like a real 11 carats stone. <laughs> no, I don't have. One. No, I have kids in a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Also, please don't come rob me. I mean, are you asking for that? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Everyone keeps saying you should tell people it's real, and I'm like, I will be murdered over this. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
there goes my finger. How can you wear a 33 carat tie? Like, well, you know, if you're Elizabeth Taylor, you wear that every day of your life. And I like to joke, like, did she wear it to the supermarket? But Elizabeth Taylor didn't go to the supermarket. She was like on a yacht. <laughs> so she wore it. I would probably time. find a way to wear it. I mean, I'm just being honest. <laughs> I would definitely find a way to wear it, but I just like every day, how do you, I mean, would I'm just trying to imagine to how big that is. The struggle right. would be she really. Yes, I would get it snagged on things. I think, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Like, it would yeah. get snagged on my. And you could never wear gloves. You know, yeah. be... gloves are out. <laughs> gloves are out. Okay, I want to talk about this. In one of the opening lines of the novel, you write, "More than one thing can be true at once." It's such a poignant, it's so good, true thing to say. Um, sometimes when I talk about that concept. I'll say it doesn't always have to be either or. Sometimes it can be and both. So I want you to talk to us a little bit about how that relates to the story you told. Yeah, you know, whenever I'm working on a book, I find I'm learning something about myself and sort of how I interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And I think over the years, what I've realized, I'm kind of like very black and white about things. And it's hard for me to see the shades of gray. And especially through this strange time we're living in, it's important to see the shades of gray. And it's important to realize, um, you know, there's lots of different opinions and lots of different people. And you get it. Like there's shades of gray and you have to there's sort of acknowledge Phil. that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was working on this, one of the things that was important to me in sort of Uh, thinking about this idea of family myths was who's actually right. (laughs) You know, like as parents, I think a lot of times we're like, there's this story and this story, and then there's the truth. But I was sort of like, what if everything was true? Because I think in life, everything sort of is true. Um, And so that was sort of what I was exploring and the idea I was thinking about. Uh, And especially when it comes to family lore, right? It's like everything's true. In fact, I'm working on a piece right now for Real Simple about an heirloom that was passed through my husband's family. So I started writing this story with the knowledge that I had when I was first told the story 14 years ago when I first met my husband. And, you know, the first time I heard this story. So I wrote it up. But whenever I'm doing an essay that's about my husband or family, you know, I'm not trying to get divorced over a byline. So I <laughs> yeah. always, I let him read it. Don't get divorced over a book, right? Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. So I had him read a copy, but I also had my mother-in-law read a copy because it's her father's ring that I'm writing about. And they both had very different ideas about what had actually happened. Wow. And I said, well, I based this on what I was told the first time I was told the story. And then my mother-in-law called, she had her own little thing. And then my husband had, and some of these ideas sort of weren't the same. So I ended up writing the piece just from my perspective, because I'm telling the story. This is the story as I was told. Needless to say, I'm sure this has happened to all of you. The word count got cut down, so it didn't matter anyway. So I ended up telling like a much more pure version um, of the story. So it was fine, but it was just very interesting that, I had been told the story. I'd been told it over the years. Mm. Both of Doug's sisters had told me different versions. And Doug, that's not right. That's not, it was fascinating. And that's sort of what I'm exploring in the book. Just this idea of um, how the same people can be telling the same story and they lived it at the same time. And it's somewhat different. (laughs) You know, it's funny that you say that. There was something that like kind of interests me that's sort of in my family history. And when I started going to like dig into it, I mean, I'm not writing a book about it, but I thought it'd be an interesting basis for a book. 
And I went to go dig into it and I called someone in my family and said, you know, you know, can you send me like these pictures or whatever? And they were like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, yeah, you know, remember? And you showed me and they were like, oh yeah, I did show you pictures, but it was of this, not this. And I'm like, how can I remember that so wow. incorrectly? Wrongly. But it's yeah. so true yeah. how our memories just like play tricks on us. It's, it's very bizarre. It's well, like a game of narrating it. Yeah. 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 But you, with each, they say, because when I was doing, um, when I was doing my research for the favorite daughter about memory, each time we narrate a story about ourselves or our family, it shifts a little here, a yeah, little there. Does. And then that narration becomes something completely new. Yes. And so it's the same memory, but narrated differently. That's great. such you know. a good point. What a fascinating thing to explore in so a book. It, I love so that. Back to your quote, it can yeah. all be true at yeah. once. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it's so interesting, especially, you know, in something like this, like sibling stories and things where everyone remembers it a little bit differently and, you know, how you open the book and it's like all kind of all of these different threads and um, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. It was just really interesting to me, but um, so you mentioned this, but at the heart of this book is what these three siblings at the center of the story describe as their parents' epic love story. And we know there's kind of the the ring connection with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. But um, I mean, no spoil, like don't give anything away. But did you parallel their love story in any other ways in this book? Um, you know, that's a tricky question. When I decided I was going to use the love story of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, mm -hmm. I, I mostly wanted to just use the idea of it. Right. And also, when you speak to people, like when I spoke to my mother about it, my aunt, different people who sort of lived in that time when it was happening, they had different ideas about what had happened. So mm -hmm. I just wanted this idea of an epic love story that where you couldn't forget about the other person, even if you were no longer with that person. They were just sort of in your life that you were thinking of that person on their deathbed. That was really the main inspiration. Once I started doing my research, it got more interesting. Once I learned more about uh, their whole love affair, it became more, more and more fascinating. So what I did was I didn't parallel the relationship, but I took nuggets from here or there and I just sort of infused the book with it. So if you are a Liz Taylor lover and you really know her life story, you'll see little nuggets. Like I mentioned the yacht before. Yeah. They famously lived on a yacht at one point in time, which I didn't know. Uh, so, of course, I have my characters go to a party on a yacht. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, there's yeah, just like yeah. little things here or there. Uh, but, you know, the book is very much a love letter to Elizabeth Taylor. So some of the parts of the relationship that maybe were a little rougher, I didn't actually want to include. I was definitely yeah. very choosy. And since it's not biographical fiction, it's really yeah. just fiction that's inspired. Um, I was able to sort of pick and choose the good stuff or, oh, or the things good. that interest me, I should say. Awesome. And then there were certain things in the relationship where I just sort of made it happen a different way. Yeah. Yeah, that absolutely yeah. makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, Brenda, one of the things um, I like so much about you, like just again, having known you for so long and followed your work for years, is that when you, you, you're so good at writing these essays that take us on a little journey, right? Because, you know, in an essay, you only have so much space, but then give us something really to take away, to sink our teeth into and take away at the end. Can you tell us what you want us to take away from this, um, 
this sweeping book that's much longer than an essay, but I, you, you always have just this, um, this nugget of wisdom. What's the nugget of wisdom you oh, want us to take from this story? Thank you. You know, I feel like the nugget is just this idea of family story and how it's passed down. Yeah. That's really what I want people talking about when they sort of finish the book. There's, there's a lot more, like you said, there's a lot more there and I tackle a lot of other things, but for me, the book is really about the nature of story. And that's sort of what I was obsessed with when I was writing it. And that's what I sort of want to keep talking about. And I get really excited when people sort of like mention it, like Jen Weiner just did a Facebook live and she said that that was her favorite part. And I was like listening with my headphones, screaming at my husband. I'm like, Jen gets it. He's like, who are you talking about? I'm like on my phone. So that's the best though, when like someone gets that thing that you were trying to do and it was like subtle, but you're like really hoping that someone gets it. You're like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And I'm sure you've, you guys have all experienced this. Sometimes someone will read their book and they'll explain it to you. They're like, yes! yeah, what was interesting about your book? And you're like, oh, really? Oh, cool. Thanks. Is that <laughs> like, an interesting part? Put it there. <laughs> that thing I spent three years on that I did oh, research on. Yeah, oh, no, that's yeah. intentional. No. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens to be there. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's the main thing. But I feel like also if you want to read it just for the love story or things like that, that's fine. If you just like yeah. sibling drama, that's fine, too. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to gamble and you want to read some <laughs> scenes about gambling, that's cool. Too. Or Brenda, if you like all of those things. Exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't? You like exactly. But you have to like diamonds. You have to like diamonds. At one point well, when I was working on diamonds? this. Yeah. Well, at one point I was working on this and I posted a picture of Liz Taylor with the crop and someone who I, I won't out her here, but she said, oh, that it's just so disgusting. It's so humongous. And I was like, what? what? <laughs> Disgustingly amazing? Is that what you mean? <laughs> Disgustingly awesome. Yeah. I'm going to go find that post and be like, can you imagine how hard it was for her to wear gloves? Yeah. <laughs> can you imagine when she I'm put on a sweater? Yeah. The struggles. The struggles she struggle faced. You could have called it the struggles of the crop. <laughs> Equally I'm gonna, catchy. I'm going to file that for. You're for really, you're really coming up with some good titles tonight, Patty. <laughs> um, okay, Brenda, this is sort of like when you have a baby and it's you're like you're you're holding it like this, and everyone's like, "When are you having the next one?" So I don't know if yeah. you can tell us anything, but can you give us any little hints about if you're working on something new? I can. And also, okay. interestingly enough, when I had my mm -hmm. first son, I was totally like, I'm having my next child very soon. <laughs> I never have a problem with that question, even in real life. Awesome. So I'm working, <laughs> I'm working on novel number eight, and it's called The Audrey Hepburn Estate. Oh and my God. Yes. So I'm taking heavy inspiration from the movie Sabrina. I don't oh, know if I you guys are familiar movie. with that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it's going to have a love triangle, but that that movie took place, well, it was supposed to have taken place Glen Cove, Long Island. And when I was working on the Liz Taylor ring, one of the things, you know, a lot of the book takes place on Long Island where I'm from and where my editor is from. And one of her notes early on was, we need more Long Island glamour. And I think she meant it as like a throwaway line, but I have not stopped saying Long Island glamour for like two years now. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm just obsessed with this idea of like, Long Island, Island glamour. glamour. So needless to say, the Audrey Hepburn estate will have lots of Long Island glamour because we've got the Glen Cove setting, which is um, 
a very fancy place, you know, perfect for Audrey Hepburn. So Love Triangle, Long Island Glamour, we've got it all. We've got it all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, Brenda, um, we could talk to you all night. I hate that we don't have more time. But um, before we leave you, can you tell all of our viewers out there where they can find you online? Oh, my goodness. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> um, my website is just brendajanowitz.com. On Instagram, I'm Brenda Janowitz Writer. On Facebook, just plain old Brenda Janowitz. <laughs> Twitter, also plain old Brenda Janowitz. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty findable. I feel like I'm everywhere online yeah, and um, commenting and all that good stuff. So if you find me online, give a shout. I'll give a shout back. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brenda. And everyone, don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Liz Taylor Ring in our Friends in Fiction bookshop.org shop or wherever books are sold. Thank you again for joining us, Brenda. And thanks to all of you out there for spending your Wednesday with us. We always love yeah. seeing you. Bye, Brenda. Thanks, guys. Bye, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.